Uh, Father, for the time we get to spend around your word, we're grateful. <clears throat> These are amazing uh, accounts that we are encountering. Uh, we are encountering in this book uh, of a church that really came to life. Uh, the body of Christ uh, centered around the person of Christ begins to have an impact on people and has all kinds of responses that come from that. Uh, we're going to look at some of the response today and, and in weeks ahead. So we pray that you will help us to uh, embrace truth today, uh, help us to kind of pull from this account those things that are going to be most helpful for us in being salt and light to a world that desperately needs to see the difference that Jesus Christ can make in a person's life. So meet us as you know our needs. We'll thank you for what you'll do and give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 4. We continue on. And uh, the, the, the message title is called The Inclusively Exclusive Gospel. And that seems like those words would butt up against each other, you know. Inclusive, exclusive. They almost seem like opposites. And yet the message of the gospel, while it is inclusive, it longs to bring all people in, also has an exclusivity to it as well. We're going to look a little bit about that and its practical application. I'm going to go down through the first dozen verses of Acts chapter 4. Um, so follow along with me as I read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the, San and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers Elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or name, or, or what name, did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being a called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now that's a rather powerful and straightforward response when the opportunity arises. We, we know from the story that Peter and John are heading to the temple for the purpose of prayer. And then God interrupts the plan. They, that was their focus point. But God allowed them to speak into the life of a crippled man. We'll find out later. 
that he was over 40 years old in the next portion, next week. Um, and, 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 and God does a miraculous thing uh, in, in, in healing this man, and it creates a big stir, naturally. Uh, people are amazed. How, how can this be? What happened? What happened? You know, and so they're wrong these questions. And and word gets out, and things are, are really looking good in terms of the message and opportunities they have to, to speak. Uh, Peter gets to preach on more than a few occasions and, and declares the counsel of God. But uh, as is sometimes the case, not always, but sometimes the case, that when you stand for something it tends to alienate people around you who may differ with you. Uh, maybe you are a person who has no problem stating what you believe, and you don't care what somebody else does or says. Maybe you're maybe just such a strong, resolute kind of person. Maybe you're the kind of person that really wants to please everybody. And when you, when you have that kind of bend to you, maybe you, there's a tendency to go a little softer on the, this is what I believe, because you want to fit it in uh, with people around. In this particular portion of Scripture, we have uh, a variety of things that occur, but it, it focuses in on an issue that is probably very contemporary in our day. And it, it, in, in the walk-in piece, I put it this way. It, 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 it encounters a claim that has alienated more than a few people over the ages. Is Jesus Christ the only way for people to be saved from their sins? And you can't put the question any simpler than that. It, 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 and it calls for either a yes or a no. I was reading some interviews that had happened uh, where, where people, uh, various people, uh, Joel Osteen was interviewed by Larry King on one interview, and, and someone else interviewed President Bush about uh, their belief issues. You know, if you believe, do you really believe that if people do not embrace faith in Jesus, that they are going to hell, for instance, would be one way that somebody put it. Or if, you, if, if a person believes as a Muslim or as a Hindu or as a Buddhist, Will they go to heaven too, just because they believe in a different system than you? And those guys responded in different ways. I was a little disappointed that Joel Osteen got really soft on, not surprised, but a little disappointed, got a little bit soft on that. And said, well, I really don't know. You know, I have to let God work that out. And uh, and I suppose God does ultimately have the opportunity to work it out. I don't do. I don't deal with it. I, I, you know. That's in his pay grade, not mine. But but he's the one that sorts that out. But it was disappointed a little bit that that in some of the other. And then President Bush had said, "Well, you know, if a person believes in whatever, I'm sure they'll go to heaven." And I thought, "Well, okay, he can be president, but he has stinky theology. So that's that's a whole other issue. Uh, we'll have to deal with that." So I want to look at that particular issue in particular today uh, as we encounter this inclusively exclusive gospel. There are several things that pop up. Uh, first, there's a question about their teaching. In the first four verses, we read that part. There was, first of all, an objection to their teaching. And the objection was, was probably as much about them teaching as it was the content they were teaching. 
because you're in the purview of the religious pedigreed people who have the responsibility and the authority and the power and the prestige to teach. And when you get some kind of young upstart over here who doesn't have the education and the degrees and the approval or the accolade of people, it creates a little bit of an issue. Um, and so the first couple verses talk about that Peter and John are doing their thing. And the, the Sadducees, the captain of the temple guard, the priest, come and uh, interrupt them. They came up to Peter and John while they were speaking. They, sometimes it's just plain rude to interrupt people. And, and they were going about their business, and all of a sudden here come the religious muckety-mucks into the way, and they're just going to get their questions answered like right now. They were greatly disturbed, verse 2 says, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, not to be surprising for the Sadducees, because they had an issue. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. Uh, that's a bad one, but uh, but uh, yeah, I couldn't pass that one up. But but there's that's the point. Uh, they there were beliefs. They are the very liberal wing of the church, and they had a difficult time believing in supernatural stuff generally. And the resurrection was an issue for them, and uh, so they they were the ones, that especially, that took exception to this. But it was as much about these unlearned uneducated people as much as anything. As a matter of fact, if you jump down into verse 13, you get you get the idea. Uh, we'll encounter this a little bit more next week. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now, that was their issue. They hadn't gone to seminary. They hadn't gone to Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamaliel's school along the way. They were They were... They were, they were just fishermen, plain, ordinary, uneducated men. It doesn't mean they were illiterate, but they were uneducated and just ordinary guys. So they didn't have the pedigree. So that was part of the objection. It's interesting in 2 Timothy 3, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This fourth chapter is the first indication that things are going to get a little different. Uh, Howard Hendricks is a longtime uh, professor uh, at the Dallas Seminary. And I remember him using a phrase one time. He said, in the early church, they discovered this principle. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. And so the church begins to grow because persecution sets in. Sometimes we don't like that idea. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. When, when things get a little bit tighter, we sometimes... The church kind of tries to duck and hide rather than stand up to the face, the opposition that's coming. But it's amazing the difference that persecution can make in terms of finding out who's who. Who's the real deal and who's the phony in the deal? Who are the nominal people? Who are the people who are all in? And it shows it makes a big difference. So there was objection to the hearing. There's also a response to their teaching. Verses 3 and 4 puts it that way. They seized Peter and John because it was evening. They put him in jail until the next day, and many who heard the message believed, and a number of people grew. It seemed like there were two responses. One was that people took exception to it. They didn't like the fact that these guys were teaching whatever they were teaching and who they were in terms of the listening that they 
head of the people, the following the head of the people. Others embraced it. And so that's what verse 4 talks about. In addition to the church, many who were heard that message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So remember that in the preaching opportunity, there were a couple thousand, and then there was another addition. And, and so, and, and the it talks about the number of men grew. So the church, if you talk about 5,000 men, you still got to deal with women and children. So you could have a group of 20,000 people here, and that's not a bad congregation to serve. You know, that's a good sized congregation. I, one person couldn't serve it, but uh, it, it takes a whole body to do that. But things were really starting to pop when you think about that a matter of weeks before, they were cowering in an upper room somewhere, afraid for what was going to happen next. And then Jesus shows up on Pentecost, and, and the Holy Spirit is, descends upon the church, and, and it, it, it ignites, and, and all the things that are part of that event. And, and in a very short period of time, you have 20,000 people. That's amazing. That was a God thing. It was a God thing. It wasn't because of Peter or John. It wasn't because of their skill or their smarts. It was because God was on these people, and that was their response. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2 and verses 8 through 10 puts it this way. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, Paul says. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Uh, Paul knows, and that's written later, of course, but Paul sees that even in, in the midst of the persecution that can and does come, Jesus is glorified and the body is built up and uh, it's not to be something we're surprised about. We we don't experience a lot of persecution. I mean, we, we just generally don't in our in our world. Um, if you go to some other countries, it's a whole other story. You can't get in. If you uh, even years ago, if you recall, when we did that uh, T-shirt Bible video with uh, John Bechtel, uh, he, he was trying to get a Bible to a lady and uh, in Hong Kong and. And couldn't do it because they recorded, you know, you brought five Bibles in and you're going to take five Bibles out. And that's where they got created and cut out a fifth of each Bible, put it together, gave it to the gal. And everything was complied with. Took five Bibles. They weren't whole Bibles, but they took five Bibles out. But they still had this T-shirt Bible that they were able to give. So persecution and and the, the screws being tightened down in terms of regulations and that kind of thing was it has been always a part. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. I don't want to get too far ahead in, in answering a lot of questions. But here, so here we are. There's the first question is about their teaching. Then there's a question about their authority, verses 5 through 7. It's interesting to me, uh, as Peter says, the next day the rulers, elders, teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and then he lists all the folks who were there. Then Peter or John brought before them, began to question them. And the question is this, by what power or what name did you do this? Uh it's 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 interesting to me that Peter and John, just going about their normal business, interrupted by these religious leaders from the first four verses, find that that even standing somewhat for Jesus has a price to it, and they're put in jail overnight. When's the last time you were in? Well, I should, probably shouldn't ask that question. Uh, 
that's probably not a good question to ask because maybe you don't want somebody to know you were recently in jail. But you know, when we were when I was growing up and attended Alliance Church in Erie, we would uh, once a month we'd go down to the local jail, the, the city jail, and we'd hold a service in the morning before we'd have church. We'd do some of those kinds of things. So. And it was always interesting because you never knew what kind of responses you're going to get from folks that were looking on the other side of the bars from you. Unfortunately, we could leave. They couldn't. You know, there was kind of captive audience of sorts there. Uh, but sometimes the jail is not the place where you want to be. You are, you are at the mercy of someone else for sure. You have lost or surrendered, at least temporarily, your freedoms to be able to go and do as you choose because of whatever reason. But the reason here isn't, here are five charges that we're going to bring you up on. And so it's understandable. They just decided, I think we need to spend the night in jail so we can deal with this. It was probably a stall tactic, but be that as it may, it resulted in them being jailed overnight. It's not the first time. It's not the last time they're going to deal with that. But God is bigger than any jail and was able to even overcome some of those obstacles. The trouble came from Religious people. That's interesting. Priests, captain of the temple guard, Sadducees. There are four major sects in Judaism. Sadducees, Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. You don't hear a lot about the last two groups. You hear more about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees is the liberal wing of Judaism. They, as I said, mentioned, had difficulty with a lot of the supernatural stuff. And so when they talk about resurrection, they thought, ah, it's not possible. So that was their conclusion or their take in terms of that kind of thing. But it's interesting that the religious people, um, in, in more than a few occasions, the problems that sometimes come in the church are not from outsiders. They're from people inside. They're the religious people. I went to a retired worker luncheon on Monday. No, Monday was Labor Day. On Tuesday, on Tuesday uh, held at Carlisle. And they were doing a variety of things. Not only did they feed us, but they just kind of encouraged and, and interacted with us a little bit. And they had uh, good friends of ours who were in seminary with Randy and Linda Corbin, who had served as district superintendent in our district for many years. Now he's retired. And he's doing a variety of things now, but he was being interviewed. And uh, he mentioned that he was, uh, at one point in time, he had pastored at Shell Point Village down in Fort Myers, Florida. And uh, as pastor of that church, you have, it, it's like a Christian ghetto. Well, maybe that's not the best way to describe it. It's a Christian conclave. It's a group of retired, some many times pastors, international workers, you know, people that lived in that, in that community. And he had, he had a group of 12 elders. I guess that's probably biblical for, I don't know, whatever. But they had a group of 12 elders. And some of them were retired, all of them were retired Many of them were pastors and or international workers. He said some of those guys were absolute princes. They were very helpful, very positive. You know, he talked about Bernard King and L.L. King and others that that had served and, and done well. And, and, and maybe if they didn't quite agree with where Randy was going to go, they, they wouldn't, you know, you know, raise their head like a snake and ready to bite. But he said, I did have some others. I did have some others that, that just were, you know, they would come in and he'd, he'd get a score on his sermon, how well they thought he did. And, and it, I mean, it was just, and he, it, it, the fascinating thing was Randy had done his doctoral study or dissertation on uh, the psychosocial effects of retired 
Christian workers. Uh, and and uh, delved into that. So he got to deal, got to experience it firsthand in terms of the religious people sometimes are not the best. So now I have to be careful because I got two alliance preachers that are retired here. But yeah, yeah, we get, I, I, I just get, get the scorecard, get it going, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I've, I've known of, of situations where pastors have retired in a, in a congregation or a community, and I've known sometimes where that's been fine. They've been an encourager, they've been support, and other times it's been nothing but a pain in the Djibouti. Uh, I, well, that's not quite, that's a country, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, it, sometimes it doesn't go well. And I've known of some situations in which superintendent has had to come in and say, look, what you're doing is causing all kinds of problems here. It's causing discord, division. You need to leave. And that's a tough spot to be. And uh, that's a hard spot. But it can. Adore. Here's the religious people that are giving the problem. They're part. And it's a deal about the authority. Uh, the, the trouble surrounded two things, power and name. The power and the name, that was the question. Um, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, there was probably some level of misperception because it wasn't Peter that healed the guy. It wasn't John that healed the guy. It was Jesus. It was the risen Christ who did that. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Uh, so they had to deal with that. And, and I think probably in the language or the tone, maybe, of their questioning at the end of verse 7, by what power or what name did you do this? I think they were looking down their righteous noses at these two guys and saying, who are you to be doing anything like this and creating this furor, this, this stirring among the people? Who are you to be doing that? By what authority do you do this? So it's a question about their teaching and a question about their authority. But in the story, there's also an answer that comes, and that's the wonderful part, verses 8 through 12. Uh, the scriptures say, when Peter, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them and responded. I don't think Peter was looking for an opportunity to get into a fight. I think he was just doing his business of sharing what Jesus had done. And, and even when he did get into the point of having to defend himself, if that was even what it was all about, it was more declaring, this is who I am, this is what has happened. So here, here's where it is. The response uh, that comes is, is uh, dealing with uh, an answer to the questioning that's being given to them by the religious leaders. Couple things about it. First, it was a spirit-empowered answer. Verse eight says, "Peter filled with the Holy Spirit," and that's a key phrase. Don't miss that as you go through the story. It was a controlled speech. It was a controlled response. It was controlled uh, and a bold speech as well. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter twelve, Jesus says this: "When they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how." or what you are to speak in your defense, or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I suspect that Peter was part of the, the audience there, but I don't know if he got it then, but he certainly got it here. 
the Holy Spirit will give you what you need to say. There are times when we encounter people with their questions and with their needs, and you begin to wonder, Lord, what, what will I say? Someone passes away, and you feel so helpless, like, what can I say? What words? What words will do it? And, and there are times when maybe you don't have the words. Maybe you just have to have arms and express love to people and, and just a hug. Sometimes that's as powerful as, as the words that you would speak, be they true, even, even when they're true. But the Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And the Spirit empowered Peter to respond. And I don't think that I don't think Peter stopped right there and knelt down and said, Lord, I need your help right now, so I need to have a good response. So let me think here. What was it? I think it was just kind of like the Spirit of God said, Here, give them this. Let them have this. And it wasn't that they had to build up to it, it's just that they were so indwelt by the power of the Spirit of God that God gave them all the words that they needed to have just along the way. And that's a God thing. It's a God thing. It was a spirit-empowered answer. It was a boldly proclaimed answer at the end of verse 8. Um, it, it says, uh, rulers, elders, all the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and ask how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It was an act of kindness shown to a cripple. You never know the impact that you may have in terms of an act of kindness. Now, I know this was a healing, but Peter here describes it as an act of kindness, doing good. Um, one writer called many of these things, these responses of a, a conspiracy of kindness, where we do things for people or with people just to serve them, just to meet their need. It's not like you're trying to get something out of it. It's not an ulterior motive. It's just God has called us to be people who are practically loving, kind people. So find those ways or look for those ways in which you can serve somebody. And it may be a very simple, practical kind of thing, but it was an act of kindness. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, is a British preacher and uh, uh, makes a comment about this. He says, all the greatest benefits that humanity has ever known have come from, uh, come through the gospel, through this gospel. Good deeds. Where did hospitals come from? The Christian church. Where did education come from? The Christian church. Where did relief for the poor and suffering come from? The Christian church. Look at the great missionary enterprise. Look at the light that has been taken to the dark places of the earth. Look at the unreasonableness of it all. If the apostles had hit the lame man on the head, I could understand why the authorities would have been upset and threw him into prison. What, what is it that makes people do such things? There's only one answer. It is the blindness and deadness in their, that is ever produced by prejudice. Something in human nature is malignant. I, th I thought it was fascinating. You know, they didn't, they didn't beat the guy up. They didn't throw him out of the way, the lame man. They didn't stomp him. They healed him by the power and name of Jesus, and that got them into trouble. The good deed gets sometimes into trouble. We have a phrase, and I'm not sure entirely what it means, but it says, no good deed goes unpunished. 
And sometimes you can do something very kind for someone, and then somebody else takes offense over here. Somebody else thinks, oh, they're up. They're trying to weasel their way in there. Or whatever the response may be, sometimes those things happen. But it was an answer that simply comes as an act of kindness. It was an act of kindness shown to a cripple. It was also by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I love that phrase is used more than a few times in the book of Acts. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And it reminds us of where he came from, where he where his roots were. John MacArthur says, a spirit-filled, uncompromising church will be uncomfortable in the world since it will be a rebuke to it. It will, however, be a powerful, victorious church. Peter and John confronted the world head-on with a boldness and eloquence that caused their opponents to marvel. They were victorious because they were spirit-filled. That's an additional response. Um, I... I don't know if you ever looked at biographies of people in the past. I find kind of fascinating to read some of these biographies. There's a biography written uh, about a, a preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. He was a very uh, strange kind of guy, 19th century circuit writer, Methodist preacher. Uh, and he was known as the Lord's Plowman. That's just an interesting descriptor. Or the Lord's Breaking Plow. Uh, he was essentially an uncompromising man. One Sunday morning when he was to preach, he was told that President Andrew Jackson was uh, in the congregation and warned, I could believe this, warned not to say anything out of line. You know, so so if we get, who's the current president? Thank you. I just want to make sure you're on the same page with me. So, so if Donald Trump walks in, I, I could have waited longer, but I, so, so Donald Trump comes in and sits down. And, and, and the Secret Service or, or his press secretary can say, now, he's going to be in your service today, but I don't want you to say it's going to be too offensive. I have no idea what in the world would be more offensive than some of the stuff that he writes. But that's another story. You know, he could, he could really get out there with some stuff real quick. But Peter Cartwright was told this uh, in anticipation of the meeting with Andrew Jackson. So he gets up to preach. He says, I understand that Andrew Jackson is here today, and I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. So he says... Uh, he said, I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent. <laughs> and, and the congregation was shocked, and they wondered how President Jackson would take that. After the service, President Jackson shook hands with Peter Cartwright and said this, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. <laughs> had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. And I, I suppose uh, you want to be tactful, but you don't want to compromise. The truth is what the truth is. And so th that's all a part of this whole issue of being, being able to boldly proclaim the answer. Now the part that really is at the heart of this, this passage of Scripture, and it's kind of like the capstone to me, is verse 12. It's an exclusively held answer. Verse 11 says, it quotes uh, an Old Testament portion, the stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Uh, so it's talking about how, how Jesus was the one who was rejected, and yet he's become the cornerstone of the capstone. Uh, he's the one that holds everything together. Um, so a couple things related to this. First of all, the language of it, very simply put, verse 12, 
Salvation is found in no one else, in no one else, in no one else. Sometimes people get their knickers in a twist over that issue, in no one else. But they miss the first part of that verse. Salvation is found. We ought to be grateful that salvation has been found and, 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 and not get all twisted up or lost in the weeds in terms of in no one else. That's clearly stated. Some of the pieces that come to that. John Piper is a, a pastor out in Minnesota in the Minneapolis area. He writes this. He says, if you compare the kingdom of God to a building, then the builders are the religious leaders. They examine the stone called Jesus of Nazareth to see if he could be a brick in the wall of truth. They said no, and they rejected him, threw him out as unusable. But God, the main architect, came along and saw the stone lying in the grave and picked him up and made him not only a brick in the wall, but the head of the corner, the chief stone in the building. Men rejected Jesus as merely a local menace with no significance beyond the killing hill of Golgotha. But God has made Jesus the universal head over all his house. Acts 2.36 says God has made him both Lord and Christ. Your salvation and no one else is the title of that particular book from which that quote comes. In no one else. Another phrase that's a part of verse 12 says no other name, no other name. Um, uh, there's a lot of music that focuses around the name. I'll go, go back to a Gaither song. This, 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 is, this is way back. And the song is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Uh, you can find other name, uh, other songs by Robin Mark, uh, other guys that just focus on some of the No other name than the name of Jesus. And, and you, can, uh, you can have a lot of fun with you know, just go and start looking for songs about the name of Jesus. It is in his, and there is no other name. Jesus says this in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He, verse, uh, 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's the, it's the uniqueness of the name of Jesus. And it is the name by which we must be saved. It's not the name that we ought to be saved. It's, it's an imperative. It's, it's, it's an essential thing. We must be saved. Um, Christians preach an exclusive message that Christ is pertinent relevant in an inclusive age. And sometimes because of that, we're often accused of being narrow-minded, even intolerant. Many paths, it is said, lead to the top of the mountain of religious enlightenment. How dare we insist that ours is the only one? In reality, however, there are only two religious paths. Jesus describes them. He says they're the broad way of works, Salvation leading to destruction, and then there's a narrow way of faith in the only Savior leading to eternal life. Religious people are on one or the other 
of those paths. Sadly, the Sanhedrin and all who followed them were on the broad road to destruction. Now, we may not like that concept that if you don't believe what I believe, if you don't believe what the Bible teaches about the essential work of Jesus Christ, that you are you are destined to spend a lifetime away from him, apart from him. And you can call it death, you can call it hell, you can call it whatever description you want to use, and, and a variety of descriptions used in the scripture to talk about that place of being separated from Christ. Whatever term you give to that, the, the reality is that there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. Um, someone said, put it this way, if your cruise ship is sinking, it is foolish to remain on deck criticizing the emergency evacuation plan. The wiser course of action is to take a seat in the nearest boat. Um, some objectors have an issue. For them, this is a belief of arrogance and intolerance. And those words are, are, are very much used in our world, in our day. Certainly in a political area, yeah. We can talk about people who are intolerant. And I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm not, I want us to be loving compassionate people, but people who embrace the truth of God's word. It's not, we respect the right of people to disagree, to hold to their belief, but our hearts need to be compassionate toward them. You don't get mad at them just because they disagree with you. You love on them, even when they disagree with you. Jesus says, blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all evil of against you falsely in my, in my, falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad. Great your reward in heaven. He says that can, that can and does happen. But you know, as much as we can sometimes be accused of arrogance or intolerance, it's, it's just as much an issue for someone else that's disagreeing with us because they are being equally arrogant or intolerant, that we cannot be entitled to hold our belief. And it's just the same on the other side of the fence at that point. It boils down to what we choose to believe on the basis of the claims of God's word. And those claims are the statements of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth who still has the power to change people far from God, which is what we were and what many people are, far from God, and bring them to him in order that they might be near to God. Carl Henry had a line that I recalled. He put it this way. He says, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. If it gets there in time. We have an opportunity, we have a responsibility to be heralds of God, to, to proclaim the message of the gospel to people around us. If, if 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 teaching and preaching that word is what's a part of it, then fine. Sometimes there's as much power in a life that is powerfully led and wonderfully spirit-filled. That speaks more louder. What you are speaks so loud, I can't hear what you say. Type thing, uh, so that there's an impact that 
the message of the gospel has had upon me, and then it just kind of flows out as we touch the lives of other people. And rather than getting into knockdown, dragout fights about who's right and who's wrong, we just adhere to what the scriptures say. So the scriptures are pretty clear on Acts 4.12. It says that there is salvation that is found in no other name. And so I suppose that means whatever other name or system you want to put it in. You can talk about Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism or whatever other ism there is in the world. They're all out there. They're all saying our way is the right way. And you can say, well, I, 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 I hear what you're saying, but I'm choosing to live my life by the book, by this book. And if you have an argument, if you have a criticism, take it to the author of the book. Take it up with God. See what you find. Find out what he has to say. And if you want to find out what he has to say, you might look in this book because this is the special revelation of God. And, and when there are differences that say, okay, but, but, but I don't believe that. Well, that's your privilege to do that. You can, you can choose not to believe in the revealed word of God about what it says about Jesus. But, but you're believing in something, and what you're believing in you think is just as or more important than what I'm believing in. So don't accuse me of being arrogant or intolerant when, when you're holding on to something equally as arrogant and intolerantly as I am. I'm just choosing. I'm choosing to be a person who follows the guideline, the commandment, the instruction of God's word and believe in who Jesus says he is. I'd much rather get into dialogue with you about what does the Bible say about who Jesus is. Is it true or not? How do you know? How do you find that kind? I'd rather move that direction than, than setting up a boxing match with somebody along the way. This is an inclusively exclusive gospel that we adhere to. And those adjectives, or I guess I guess they're adjectives, yeah. I, was, I have to be careful with my LYs because they sometimes are adverbs. But anyway, let's just assume that inclusively exclusive. In other words... There's a heart to want to include anyone and everyone who is willing to hear the message of the gospel. But it is exclusive in that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the heart of an inclusively exclusive gospel. Now next week, next week we get to move on to another piece it talks about what they observed in these guys and then the impact and difference that that made. But you'll have to come back next week. I can't guarantee you'll have as many variety of choices to eat from, but, but that, that's, another, that's another kettle of fish. We are people who get to tell the good news. So this week, as you go about the places that you would go, be conscious that God may be using you to be salt and light, to influence through love and service, conspiracy of kindness, to touch the lives of people about you for his glory, for his greater glory, in order that men might see the difference that Jesus makes in me and you as we walk about wherever it is that he has us planted so that we can bloom for him this week. Let's pause for prayer. Now, Father, um, you know uh, 
you know the things that go on in our heart and mind, and you even know the feelings we get when we get into discussions with people, and they they take exception, they disagree over over this business about you have to believe in Jesus, and all that we're here is to simply say this is the message of the gospel, this is what the Bible says, and so you have a choice to make. You can either choose to believe that or not. It, in in choosing to believe that that Jesus is the is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him, uh, that's the path. That's the path people need to walk on. And it's the path that the Spirit of God is able to open up and help reveal and disclose things in their heart that will enable them to embrace, embrace the truth of who Jesus is and embrace the Christ. If people choose to walk on a different path, that is their choice. That is their right. But it, it help us to be people who have a desire to get the good news to people uh, so that we don't keep them from receiving that news. Help us to get it there in time. You'll lead us to people, and maybe even this week, you'll use us to get the word to somebody in time. So use us in ways that will bring honor to Jesus. We'll thank you for what you'll do. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.